I got given a gift once by a work colleague. It was this. And I said, great, thanks. And Sally said, you don't know what it is, do you? And I said, no. And she said, I'm not going to tell you. And I said, great, thanks. Was it an implement of discipline? Uh, Was it a meringue aerator? Was it a paint stirrer? If you don't know the purpose of a gift, you're likely to use it the wrong way. Turns out my gift was a spaghetti portion measurer. Sometimes, if you don't know the purpose of a gift, the consequences can be catastrophic. Take petrol. If you put it in your car's fuel tank, you will get efficiently and safely from A to B, unless you own a diesel. But if you pour it on a fire, if you drink it or sniff it, you may well die. If you don't know the purpose of a gift, you're likely to use it the wrong way. And our Bible passage today, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, it centers around Christ giving his church certain gifts. Now, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus is a game of two halves. Chapters 1 to 3, Paul sets out great doctrines of the Christian faith, what Christians believe. We've been hearing over the past several weeks in our sermon series, we are the loved, adopted, holy children of the eternal God. And chapters 4 to 6, the second half of the book, set out ethical instructions, how Christians are to live. Ephesians 4 verses 1 to 16, and I do hope you've got it open in front of you to make sure that you can test what I'm saying against what God has said in his word. This passage provides the framework and the context for all the ethical instructions that are going to follow in the rest of this book of the Bible. And the framework is that they hang off one word, walk. So verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Let's break this verse down really quickly so we're all on the same page. As a prisoner for the Lord, pretty simple. Paul wrote this letter from jail where he was in prison for his faith. Then, or therefore, in the light of everything I've said in chapters 1 to 3, all the great Christian doctrines I've set out, now go and do something as a result of those beliefs I've set out. And he then says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life. Literally, walk. The Greek word is peripateo, like the pitter-patter of footsteps. Because of what we believe, we live a certain way. That's the framework. And the context is you and me, us, the local church, St. Andrews. Jesus has given us certain gifts and we need to know what their purpose is so that we will use them the right way and we need to know that it's going to shape what we do and how we live when we gather as a local church. Now, our passage, verses 
1 to 16 is a love sandwich. It begins in verse 2 where we are told to be people who bear with one another in love. And at the very end, we find that the church builds itself up in love. So whatever else we conclude out of the intervening verses, it's got to be informed by love. Vertical, love for God and his son, and as we heard from Stu last week, his mind-blowing love for us, and horizontal, our love for each other that seeks the good of the other. Remember verse 1, because of the doctrine set out in chapters 1 to 3, we are the adopted, holy, loved, united in Jesus, uh, children of God the Father. Uh, We are to live a life worthy of our calling. Literally, walk this way. Walk is a metaphor for how you live. And it comes up again and again and again in the rest of the letter. That's why this sermon series is called Walking in Christ. It's almost as though Mal had read the whole book and summed it up intentionally in one little catchy phrase so that we would remember it. So we want to have this in the back of our mind all the time. What sort of walk are we walking? Now, sometimes I walk with my wife Lib in the sunshine. It's leisurely. It's a stroll. Sometimes I I walk the 18 minutes from my home to Clara Station. It's not a stroll because it's almost all uphill and I've got a train to catch. And other times I I walk uh, the dog on the fire trail down the back of Lady Game Drive. That's a whole other kind of walking altogether. What sort of walking are we to do as God's adopted, holy, loved, united people? Just keep that in your mind as we work through our text In verse 2, we are called to be 100% humble, 100% gentle. We are to be patient. We are to cut each other slack because we love each other. Let me just dwell on gentleness for a moment. Biblical gentleness is not being a doormat. Biblical gentleness is not being a pushover. Let me show you four pictures of biblical gentleness. A V8 supercar on two wheels going through a chicane. The all-black scrum. A soldier on patrol. And a barnstorming NRL winger. Biblical gentleness is strength under control. Strength under control. And gentlemen, for you and me, that means our bicep. Put your strength under control in service of others in love. And ladies... You are much smarter than us, blokes. You are much quicker than us. Your great strength is your tongue. Keep your strength under control. We are to use our strength in the service of love. Love of God and love of neighbor, vertical and horizontal. Well, verse 3, our passage in this, in fact, sentence in 
Paul's letter continues. We are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. In verse 4, Paul's going to go on to explain how we're all different, but before he gets there, he reminds us of the unity we have as people who have uh, the one Holy Spirit within them, who have the one Lord, Jesus, one hope expressed in one baptism and founded on the one and only God who, verse 6, invites us to know him as dad, as father. And as an aside, if you don't know the God of the Bible as your father, can I commend to you the Christianity Explored course that our senior minister Mal is running? This one God and father of all people is, verse 6, overall, through all and in all. This is not pantheism. You know, God is in the the trees and the rocks and the insects and the sunrise and all of it. No, this is God reminding us of what he said back in chapter 1, verses 10, 22 and 23, if you're at home taking notes, that God is the creator, the sustainer and the moral owner of everything in the universe. So all things have a profound unity in which we, as God's people, are to express in our lives together. And verse 7 begins with the word, but. It's a contrast. We have this profound unity, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Even though we have this profound unity, we're different. Christ has given us differing apportionments of grace. Now, grace here doesn't mean salvation. It's not the amazing grace that John Newton sang about. Grace here still has the underlying idea of getting something you don't deserve. And verses 7 through 10 explain this before Paul returns in verse 11 to spell out what gifts Jesus has in fact given us. Verse 8 quotes, from a psalm to say that Jesus, our ascended and conquering king, has gifts for us. And the excitement in the the thrust of this passage is building, like meeting a loved one at the airport and you know they have gifts for you. You're excited to see them and you're excited to see what they think of you as demonstrated in their gifts. But Paul breaks into our excitement with a quick reminder in verses 9 and 10 that Christ, the ascended gift giver, must have descended before he ascended. Jesus, the king of the cosmos, who, verse 10, fills the whole universe, is the same Lord who descended to the lower earthly regions. Jesus, the Lord of glory, went to hell for you. And we know from chapter 2 that sin pays off with death and hell. And if you don't know and trust God as your father, then your sins remain on you and hell is your future. So please, go all in on Jesus and let his death, let his descent to hell take the place of your eternal death, your eternity in hell. And and so you can become part of God's family with a, a new and secure and glorious and eternal future. Back to Jesus, the gift giver. Verse 11. It was Jesus who gave to the church people to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. 
Mal, Stu, Ness, Kath, Santino, Peter, Grant, Lauren, the, our youth work uh, students, they're all God's gifts to us as teachers and pastors, and we should praise and thank God for them. And for today, I am God's gift to St. Andrews as a teacher. And if any of you would like to exchange this particular gift for a different teacher, don't worry, normal transmission from the pulpit will resume next week. We move on. And thank you for your encouragement here in the building. Uh, Verse 11 explains why we have certain people over us as leaders in our church. It's because Jesus gave them to us. And then verse 12, can you see, it's not so much for you and me as members of the church as it is for Mal and his team and for church leaders and pastors everywhere. Why has Jesus given the church the gift of these different types of leaders? Not for your entertainment. Not for your pleasure. Not for your self-promotion not to do everything that needs doing around St. Andrews, and there is plenty that needs doing, like they're, you know, our palliative care nurse who does everything for you to make you comfortable. No, verse 12, they've been given to the church to prepare God's people for works of service. Their job, their calling, is to prepare you and me as God's adopted holy, loved, and united people for works of service, for ministry. And the purpose of their work that enables our work is that the body of Christ, the church, may be built up. And this is really important. The reason God has structured his church in the way that he has is so that the body of Christ may be built up. And our local church just down the hill from Roseville Station, is an instance, a manifestation of the body of Christ on earth. And the Apostle Paul will make it clear in verse 15 that Jesus is the head of the church and we're all body parts in this metaphor. Now, a danger in our performance-based culture is that we're going to ask, well, what's the most important part of the body? You know, Mal and Stu and, and, and the rest, they're all much more important than me. I'm, I'm, just a, I'm just a fingernail that needs cutting compared to them. Let me say, that's a silly question to ask and a silly way to think. If the body wants to eat some food, what's the most important part of the body? Now, you, you might be tempted to, to jump to saying, oh, well, that, that's, the, that's the mouth or the stomach. But how are you going to get food without feet and legs to get you to the fridge? And how are you going to open the door of the fridge without hands and arms? And how are you going to know which container to get without eyes to see? And how are you going to work out if the food is off or not without a nose to smell? And and crucially, how are you going to get the lid off the tub of ice cream unless you've got a long fingernail to get under the lid. You see, we all have a part to play in the body of Christ. So it's an illegitimate question to ask, who is the most important part in the body? It's like asking, what's the colour of the number seven? It's, it's just not a question that makes sense to ask. 
Because as we each play our rightful part with works of service, the body is built up. And here, Paul mixes his metaphors. He uses a house-building word to describe the building up of the church, the body of Christ. But it's a good mixed metaphor. Let me explain. My brother-in-law is a master bricklayer. And when a house gets built, it gets built in two directions, outwards and upwards. And it all starts with a stake in the ground, a stake in the ground marking the corner of the lot or the development. Then the slab gets poured and the building goes out from that stake in the ground. Then the brickies come and build the house up, out and up, out and up, just like the church. It began with a stake in the ground across outside Jerusalem, where the king of the cosmos died the death you and I deserve for our sins. And the church is built out when people like you and me, average punters, tell their mates about Jesus. Beggars telling other beggars where they've found food. And unbelievers come And they hear the good news of the gospel and some are saved and so included in the body and the body is built out. And as our pastors and teachers do their work, we, verse 13, can you see it there? We reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We who have been built in are built up to maturity in Christ by the work of our teachers and pastors. So when our leaders do their job, which is to prepare you and me for works of service, for ministry, we're going to see two things. We're going to see people being saved. And we're going to see the saved become more like their saviour. The church will be built out and up. Now, doing these works of Christian service that we're being prepared for may mean that we send you away from St Andrews, maybe to go to another less well-resourced church, perhaps one of the churches you drive past to get to St Andrews so that you can serve that local body of Christ. Maybe it means asking the question, Should I be one of those evangelist, pastor, teacher types? Should you be considering giving up in part or in whole your job, your career to get specialist training? Is God putting it on your heart to devote yourself to full-time Christian ministry? Maybe as a pastor here in Sydney. Maybe using your skill set as a passport to overseas missionary service. Maybe God is putting it on your heart to assist in our kids or youth programs or to teach SRE in your local public school or to lead a midweek Bible study group. My serious, personal and fervent encouragement 
to each one of you, and I, I'm a parishioner at five o'clock church. I'm not on the, the staff team here. My encouragement to you is to reach out to Mal or Ness or Stu or one of the team and say, I want to be just like you. Well, actually, we're not going to say that, are we? No. Maybe we could say instead, look, that sermon on Ephesians 4 just made me very uncomfortable. Can we talk about it? My story is that I was sitting in the pew of my church and I was challenged by my pastor to leave my commercial career back in the 90s and go to Bible college because I didn't want to get to heaven myself. I wanted to see as many people in there with me as I possibly could maturing Christ. And I could do far more evangelistic and pastoral work as a church minister than compared to working 12 to 14 hours a day over spreadsheets and contracts. Hell is hot, and eternity is a very long time, and Jesus is magnificent and trustworthy. You've only got one shot. Don't waste your life. And as we take our one shot at life, Verses 14 to 16, they show us what we should be aiming for, what maturity as a Christian, what attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ looks like. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Two things here. Number one, a mark of Christian maturity is not getting sucked in by every wind of teaching, every new idea that blows across our social media feed. Right now, it means not getting sucked into thinking that your identity is somehow determined by your feelings and all the better and all the more legitimate if you can link those feelings to some form of victimhood, sucked into thinking that gender doesn't matter. A mark of Christian maturity means that knowing your Bible, recognizing your heavenly Father's voice, knowing what he says in his word, That is your true north. And the second mark of Christian maturity means you will speak the truth in love. Now, we all know people in our lives who are very good at speaking the truth. And it's like getting punched in the face. And I suspect we also know people who are very kind, who are so loving, or so they think, but they'll never tell you the truth. They're content to allow you to continue to wallow and flounder in errors and lies. A mature Christian knows the truth about what they believe and how their Saviour wants them to live because they are growing up to maturity in Christ. For our current sermon series, they know both Ephesians 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6 what they believe, and how their saviour wants them to live. They know that sometimes loving someone means telling them hard truths. 
but they're able to communicate those truths in ways that ensure that their conversation partner knows that they are loved and they are in safe hands with you. They know Proverbs 27.6, the wounds of a friend are faithful, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. They know that the opposite of love is not saying the hard things. The opposite of love is not saying anything at all. The opposite of love is apathy, not caring at all about what someone does, not caring about how they walk, whether they are walking in Christ or not. The mark of Christian maturity that comes on the back of Jesus gifting the church with leaders who prepare you and me for works of service that build the church out through evangelism and build the church up through the increasing godliness that, uh, that you and I, uh, as we enjoy as we reach toward maturity in Christ, then we won't be like an infant caught in a swirling river. We will be like Olympic swimmers who power through the currents that would otherwise seek to drag us under. We will be wise and we will be loving and we will be clear-headed enough and right-thinking enough to speak the truth in love to people which will see them draw closer to Jesus. And can you see there, verse 16, the second piece of bread in this love sandwich? The church will build itself up in love as each part does its work. Each part of the body of Christ does its work. Remember how the whole body works as one to get the ice cream from the fridge? Even the fingernail that needs cutting? What is your part to play in our church? Decide today, friends. I'm not going to be a spiritual baby. I'm going to step up toward maturity in Christ I'm going to see my church build itself up in love as each part, even my part, does its work. Why don't you talk to one of our pastors, shoot him an email, I'll give him a call and ask them, what's my work? We have a great church, a great God, a great salvation, a great hope. We've been given great gifts and we have a walk to walk. Let's get to it. Let me pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for our church. We thank you for gifting us with pastors and evangelists and teachers who can prepare us for works of service that we might grow to maturity in Christ, that we might attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves. Instead, we will speak the truth in love. We will grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. Lord God, would you grow us up to maturity in Christ? Would you build your church? We pray this for our sake for the sake of those around us and for the glory of Jesus in our time. Amen. Well, thank you very much for that, Craig. Um, There are some questions on the phone and a few of them 
um, actually asking the same thing. And so I'm going to summarise that question for you um, and look forward to your answer. But if you are at home or here, do text your, an your questions in and I'll ask them for you. One of the um, themes of a few of the questions is basically, how do we work out what part we are called to play? And I think you just said at the end there, why don't you contact one of the team and we can sit together. And in fact, we do um, often meet with people one-to-one -to, -one to search the scriptures and to pray together and to see if God is making it clear what people are called to do. Um, but is there a process in discerning God's voice and can you speak really practically to that? Uh, what, just say the question again. I forgot it after you answered it. <laughs> how do we know? How do we know what part we're meant to play? How do we know what part? You will. How do we know what part to play? Um, well, I'm, I'm thinking of Romans chapter 12, where we're encouraged to consider ourselves with sober judgment. Now, just just think critically and 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 as objectively as we can about what we're good at and what what quickens your pulse. Um, what puts jam in your donut, floats your boat, gets you out of bed? What, what do you love to do? Let, let, let's start with that. And then let's think about then the, the, the set of things that you're good at. And then like at that intersecting Venn diagram, let's look at where what you love to do and what you're good at overlap. And let's start there. And, and well, how do you do that? Well, you, um, you, you, reach, out, well, you reach out to you, Ness, or, or to to um, Mal or to Stu or one of the, your Bible study leader and just, just start the conversation um, and, and talk. Uh, we've been gifted with pastors and teachers to prepare us with service. Um, friends, let, let's get value for our money. Let's put them to work. Let, let's, let's reach out to them and um, ask them, can we buy them a coffee and just, just talk and ask them the question, what do you think my part is? And you might be surprised if not thrilled by what they have to say. You're welcome to put us to more work and also you are welcome to buy us a coffee. Um, this is a, a good a backup question. Life is so busy. Do you have any recommendations on how to be fired up and recognise the things we are? And I want to be specific with you because you have just told us your testimony about how you've sat in the pew and had to face that question for yourself and I'm sure there was another process as you then took on the role at YouthWorks. And you live in this space um, you're in the fire trail back at Lady Game Drive. You're, you've got kids in school. You're, you're doing what we're doing. How have you walked through that process in a busy life to recognise what you're called to do? Yeah, it's funny. Isn't it? we, in the last 50 or 60 years, we, we've just, just had so many labour-saving, time-saving things offered to us, but we're just so time-poor. Uh, we, we've been sold a lie by our culture. And I think it's, it's like when you, you, you pack the car to go on holidays, um, you put the most important things in first. You put your, your suitcase in and the esky with food, and once the big things are in, then you decide you know, how many boogie boards and stuffed toys and all the rest you, you're going to take. If you put the, the stuffed toys in first, you, you might not have enough food or Close for your holiday. You put the important things in first. So work out what's the most important thing in your life and how do you prioritise attending to that before you allow yourself to be pushed and blown around by every wind of teaching that's coming at you in your, your news feed. Be intentional. And often you need a good, trusted friend 
to help you see that. Um, so my, my encouragement is re- reach out to a trusted Christian friend or one of your pastors and say, look, this is, what I, this is what's important to me, but this is what I'm doing and there's a disconnect. Can you just help me with some time management stuff, please? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one more question along this line. Is it possible to walk um, worthy of our calling? Like um, if we commit to playing the part that we think we're meant to play in, in the body... Um, and yet we're still a mixture of success and failure, how would you um, encourage us as we try and play that part but do it a mixture of good and bad? Yeah, I, I, I deliberately used a line in my sermon that, that we are beggars telling other beggars where we've found food. We bring nothing to the negotiating table with God. And that is just tremendously liberating for me that I know that it's not about what I do but what Jesus has done. And as we fail, we fail forward. We know that we're saved by grace and that we are loved eternally and unconditionally. And I found that to be so empowering and liberating in my life that I'm free. I don't have to watch my back because the king of the cosmos, Jesus has got my back. And that frees me up to try to uh, live a life in, in service of him and others. And I so fail to do that. And I go back to remembering that I'm a great sinner and Jesus is a great saviour and I keep falling and failing forward and picking myself up and letting others in the church pick me up and dust me off and put me back on the paddock. Amen. As someone who's dusted off a few times and gotten back on the paddock, I agree with that. Thank you very much, Craig. Um, There's lots to reflect on from today and I encourage you to um, personally go back to Ephesians 4. Um, think through the things that you've um, noted today and, um, and do start that process if it's not something you've begun before.